0: Excited Utterance, the evidence and proof podcast. Episode 85, Kristen Eichenser, the law and politics of cyber attack attribution. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your guest host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. On the show today is Kristen Eichenser, an assistant professor at the UCLA School of Law. Kristen's new paper, The Law and Politics of Cyberattack Attribution, examines an issue of evidence and proof as it applies outside the courtroom. That is, her paper focuses on proving cyber attacks. When a nation, or even a private entity, is trying to determine who was responsible for a cyber attack, what evidence should exist, or even what standard should apply, before they can confidently attribute a cyber attack to a particular perpetrator? My conversation with Kristen takes on these challenging questions, considers their implications, and explores other issues of proof as they apply in this unique context. Kristen, it is great to have you on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So your paper focuses on the attribution of so-called cyber attacks, asking what kind of processes do states and private entities use to discern and respond to adverse cyber activity. Now, that's a fascinating and complex question. I really enjoyed reading your paper, Kristen. And I just want to build your paper's contributions first just by clarifying some key terms. So first things first, what does it actually mean to attribute a cyber attack?
1: So it can actually mean different things. At the most general level, it means identifying the source of a cyber attack. But source itself can mean different things. So it can mean the machine from which an attack is coming, the person sitting at the keyboard or the person or entity that's ultimately responsible for sort of setting the attack in motion. So the machine level is a technical question, but the other two, the person behind the keyboard and the person or entity who's ultimately responsible, those identifications and attributions implicate legal and policy questions, and it's those issues that I'm mostly focused on. So when I talk about cyber attack attribution in the paper, I'm talking about the process of assigning responsibility for carrying out a cyber attack, and I'm talking about the people and you know, entities that are responsible.
0: Great. So you suggest that there's been something of an historical evolution in how both states and non-governmental actors attribute cyber attacks. So let's start by looking at states or governmental actors. So technically speaking, how have governments improved their ability to detect or even prove cyber attacks?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting because we know little about how exactly they've technically improved, but we know that they have. <laughs> we can sort of speculate about how exactly they've done that. They have started to say things about their tactics becoming more sophisticated and maybe dropping some hints about artificial intelligence and machine learning. But we don't really know exactly what they've done for you know, reasons that may be obvious. If we knew exactly how they were detecting attacks that would be a roadmap for attackers to mask their identity. So this whole thing is a bit of a cat and mouse game. But we do know that in a lot of cases, attribution is based at least in part on human error by the attackers. Basically, the attackers have bad operational security. So the U.S. Office of the Director of National Intelligence has said that almost all of their cyber attribution successes have resulted from discovering errors by the attackers. So what does that look like? For example, maybe forgetting to use a VPN so that network traffic can be tracked back to infrastructure that the government or the company knows has been used by the North Korean government or the Russian military or something like that.
0: So when we make a cyber attack attribution, is the United States, for example, compelled to release some evidence proving that claim? Or if there's not a formal requirement, does the government at least offer some proof as a matter of course?
1: So the United States has taken the position that it is not required to release evidence to support its attributions. So in a speech in November 2016 by the then State Department legal advisor, Brian Egan, the U.S. set out this view and basically said international law doesn't require the giving of evidence to support attributions. Now, subsequent to that, the United Kingdom has taken that position. And just in the last three months or so, uh, in the fall of 2019, uh, France and the Netherlands have also jumped on board with that position. But at the same time, while the governments are saying there is no requirement to give proof, they do generally give proof as a matter of policy. And they've begun to give more proof over time. So when the United States attributed the Sony pictures hack to North Korea in December 2014, that was actually its least supported attribution. It didn't give very much evidence. And that prompted a lot of pushback and questioning about whether the government had the evidence and what the evidence was and what the basis for the attribution was. And so given some of this pushback, the FBI, actually by then FBI Director Jim Comey, gave somewhat more evidence and disclosed more of the basis for the attribution.
0: So let's quickly shift gears now to non-governmental actors. What role do they play in attributing cyber attacks?
1: Yeah, so they actually play quite an important role. And who are these players who are non-governmental actors? Some of them are cybersecurity companies, so companies like Mandiant, FireEye, CrowdStrike, uh, some of them are big tech companies, so companies like Microsoft, Google, Facebook have done some of these attributions. And then there are also there's an academic institute called the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto that's done a number of attributions. And the Electronic Frontier Foundation has also done some.
0: So you note in your paper that the attributions by these non-governmental actors are often quite detailed, even more detailed than the attributions we get from governments. So why is that? And what kind of evidence do non-governmental actors often provide?
1: They tend to provide quite a lot of evidence. The gold standard for this is something called the Mandiant Report, which is a report released by a cybersecurity company called Mandiant that accused the Chinese People's Liberation Army, a couple of specific people, of carrying out attacks against the United States and stealing intellectual property. And this is a dozens and dozens of pages in this report, it came with technical appendices, basically giving technical information that would allow others to verify the evidence and look at the evidence and substantiate the attribution. So other private parties, other governments can look at the information and the databases that they have and see whether they see activity coming from the same sources or using the same kind of code. And that can be useful because it tells other entities who have sort of significant haystacks of data what to look for. But in addition to being more detailed, these private, non-governmental attributions are also often faster than government attributions. So maybe the best example of this is the hack of the Democratic National Committee. The company that they hired to investigate, a company called CrowdStrike, attributed the attack to the Russian government months before the U.S. government actually made any official statement. And also sometimes these non-governmental actors, they're covering different kinds of attacks. So in particular, the Citizen Lab has focused on attacks by governments against human rights advocates, against journalists. So they're looking at slightly different kinds of attacks often.
0: So with all of that as background, let's dive into the more technical aspects of actually proving a cyber attack. You note that international law on the standard of proof that states have to meet when accusing other states of wrongful acts or, or adverse cyber activity is actually unclear. So if you would, give us a picture of why that standard is so murky.
1: Yeah, so the International Court of Justice, which is the court in the United Nations system, has dealt with a number of cases with respect to international wrongs or internationally wrongful acts and in international law jargon. And you might have expected that that court, which would have been very influential, to set out a standard for how much evidence is required to prove you know, a particular wrongful act. Or you could have seen states set out a standard via practice. But in many cases, that really hasn't happened. And so the the court, the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, has said some things. In a 2007 case on the application of the Convention Against Genocide, the court said that claims against a state involving charges of exceptional gravity must be proved by evidence that is fully conclusive. So this suggests a sliding scale. The more severe the accusation, the more evidence you need to prove it. And if you look to state practice, states sometimes seem to suggest that for uses of force or actions in self-defense that are using force, that there's sort of a clear and convincing or clear and compelling evidence requirement. But that's really just the very high end of state actions. So for example, the United States said in its filings to the United Nations after the 9-11 attacks, is something like this clear and compelling or clear and convincing evidence standard. But that only addresses this very narrow band of state action, armed attacks and uses of force, and the vast majority of cyber attacks don't reach that level. So for everything that's below the use of force armed attack level, international law is just very unclear.
0: Interesting. So even if there isn't a widely agreed upon threshold in practice, what have scholars generally concluded about, say, an appropriate burden of proof for cyber attack attribution?
1: You know, this is really quite a new issue, and scholars haven't said much about it, which is why I was motivated to write the paper. There's been a lot more focus on issues about the primary norms of behavior. So, you know, what can states do, what they can't do in cyberspace, not how do you prove it. So, to give you one example, the Tallinn Manual, which was a a very influential restatement like project done under the auspices of the NATO Cyber Defense Center for Excellence, basically says that there is no basis under established international law for concluding that you have to give evidence. And so the Tollman manual sort of says something as a general matter, kind of like the sliding scale approach of the International Court of Justice, but it really doesn't say very much at all.
0: Let's shift gears here to your paper's normative proposal. So regardless of historical practice, putting that to the side, do you think that the law and not just policy, but actually legal constraints should require the disclosure of evidence for cyber attack attribution? And if so, what
1: standard should control here? So the short answer is yes. (laughs) I do think that there should be law on this. And the paper is largely focused on this question and on proposing and defending a, a proposed standard. So I'm deeply uncomfortable with the idea that the requirement to give evidence is just a matter of policy. And the reason for that is that policy can change and policy can be disregarded at any time. And I'm worried that saying that the requirement to give evidence is just not a requirement, that it's just a choice, policy choice, could risk normalizing what I call in the paper, trust me, or evidence-free attributions. I think the big risk here in the era of fake news and collapse of truth and disinformation is false attributions. I think there's a risk that states or other entities are going to go out and start accusing other states without proof of engaging in cyber attacks. And that's especially risky because attributions are some of the best evidence we have about state practice. And state practice is an important ingredient in setting international law, these sort of primary rules of international law for cyberspace. So to the extent that we have false attributions based on false state practice, I'm worried that that could skew the development of the primary norms. And I'm fighting a bit of an uphill battle here. As I mentioned, I'm arguing against now the position of the United States, United Kingdom, France, and Netherlands, saying that evidence is not required. But to me, that position seems really short-sighted. And so what I'm trying to do in the paper is to propose a particular standard that I think would be workable and also helpful in fostering stability and avoiding conflict in cyberspace. So the standard the paper proposes is that when a state attributes a cyber attack, it should have to give sufficient evidence to enable cross-checking or corroboration of the attribution. Translating this to U.S. standards of evidence terms, you can think of this sort of like a verifiable preponderance of the evidence standard. And as a general matter, what I'm saying is that when states do these attributions, they should provide sufficient technical details to allow other potential attributors, whether they're companies, governments, academic experts, to either confirm or debunk the attribution. And ultimately, I think that's going to bolster the credibility of the attributions. And improving the credibility of attributions, in turn, can lead to greater agreement about what states are up to in cyberspace. We don't have a lot of visibility into what they're doing because there aren't necessarily physical effects when there's a cyber attack, there are issues of classification, So the attributions that become public are giving us pretty good insight into what states are doing.
0: So let me follow up on a point that you just made. Because you suggest that international law, not domestic law, should govern attribution evidentiary standards. Why why is that?
1: Well, some of the mechanisms that the United States has used to make attributions, particularly criminal indictments and economic sanctions, are covered by domestic legal standards. But those standards are low. They're probable cause or reasonable basis. And other mechanisms the U.S. has used, like technical alerts issued by the Department of Homeland Security and press releases, aren't governed by law at all. So for me, the accusation against a state is a legally relevant act, even if it's not governed by domestic law. So given the state-to-state nature of the accusation, I think it makes sense to deal with this in the realm of international law, which is itself designed to deal with state-to-state accusations, rather than relying on domestic law standards that are designed for a different purpose, vary by country, and aren't agreed across different legal systems. I also think there's a possibility that setting a clear evidentiary standard in the cyber attack context could help spur greater clarification of the general international law standards on evidence giving, which we already talked about
0: are unclear right now. Mm -hmm. Your paper also notes that the problem of credibly attributing state-sponsored cyber attacks has actually prompted several recent proposals to essentially centralize responsibility for attribution. So what do some of those proposals look like?
1: Yeah, so the proposals vary based on the extent to which they want states to be involved in this international entity if they think states should be involved at all. So they're all focused on setting up a new institution that would make attributions of state-sponsored cyber attacks. So the Atlantic Council proposed a multilateral cyber adjudication and attribution council that would be states only. So it would exclude everybody else, academic experts, companies, etc., And the vision the Atlantic Council has is that this council would do attributions and adjudicate interstate disputes. So it would do things like rule on damages for cyber attacks. Another proposal that's kind of in the middle came from Microsoft, and it has proposed a a multi-stakeholder entity modeled on the International Atomic Energy Agency. So this would have a mix of states and non-governmental experts, and it would just focus on doing attributions, so nothing like ruling on damages. And then at the other end of the spectrum, in a report that was funded by Microsoft it actually went considerably further than Microsoft's own proposal, the Rand Corporation proposed a global cyber attribution consortium. But the defining feature of that proposal was that Rand says that states need to not be involved at all. So Rand says there's sufficient expertise and information outside of government so states aren't needed, and they worry that the participation of states could actually skew the attributions that would come out of an, entity, an international entity.
0: And Kristen, what are your thoughts on these existing proposals? What do you think is the best path forward here?
1: So, I think the question of whether to involve states is hard. Bringing governments into an organization risks corrupting the attribution process, but leaving them out risks hampering the entity's access to crucial intelligence information and maybe preventing it, therefore, from making attributions of particularly significant cyber attacks. But having some governments in and some governments out is going to make the entities seem biased or not have wide appeal. So I I think that question is really difficult. And I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical that these entities will get off the ground. But at the same time, I think they could be useful if it was done as part of this decentralized system that we have now. So I think these international entities could be useful to help improve access to attribution resources among victims. So non-governmental entities and some governments may not have sophisticated capabilities to attribute attacks when they're the victims, and they may not have the resources to hire some of the private cybersecurity companies. But I think my top line point on the international entity proposals is that they should supplement and not replace the current decentralized system. I think there's some serious risks to centralizing. You make all attributions depend on the credibility of a single entity. And it's going to be hard to have a tent that's big enough to bring everyone in that you'd want to be convinced of an attribution. I think there's also risks of slowing down an attribution if you centralize. So different attributors can now can go out and publicly make accusations whenever they want based on their own investigations. If you centralize things, then the the timetable is going to be driven by the most reluctant among the attributors. And that I think is a serious risk of slowing things down. I think also my proposed evidentiary standard if it's adopted, would decrease the need for a centralized attribution entity. So instead of relying on the single entity's authority, if you have the evidentiary standard that requires anyone, states in particular, doing an attribution to give evidence to support their attribution, then you can have independent corroborations. You don't need to centralize all of the information at the outset. It could trickle out and increase in credibility based on the evidence that's provided.
0: Last question, Kristen, what's next for the literature? What type of paper would shed some additional insight on this issue?
1: Well, I think more work on the legal standards for evidence in international law generally would be really helpful. I was somewhat surprised when I started researching this and realized how unsettled the standards are outside the cybersecurity context. But I would also love to see more work on evidence in cyber attack attributions in particular. You know, I've made one proposal in this paper for what the standards should be, and I think it's a good one. But more attention to these sort of secondary questions of how do you prove what's happening in cyberspace would really, I think, help things along and at least has the potential to, we can perhaps make some progress on these secondary questions while conversations about the primary norms, what states can and can't do are a little bit stalled right now.
0: Well, Kristen, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been a fascinating conversation.
1: Thank you so much for having me. To
0: my mind, Kristen's paper offers us a wonderful opportunity to consider how to best approach issues of evidence and proof, and really, in many ways, issues of epistemology that arise outside the context of the courtroom. Now on the one hand, I think my conversation with Kristen shows that there are clear parallels between the prevailing approach to quote-unquote proving cyber attacks and how actors go about proving claims in court. At a high level of abstraction, for example, in both instances, absolute certainty is not the desired confidence level. Rather, a claim is proven when a certain standard, be it a preponderant standard, clear and convincing evidence, the reasonable doubt standard, etc., is met. Likewise, in both instances, in both contexts, both the cyber attack attribution context and the courtroom context, there's a need for horizontal equity the applicable standard that we're going to use to prove that a cyber attack was say committed by Russia has to be the same standard that we're using to determine that a cyber attack was committed by say the United States just as the applicable standard needed to show that defendant A is liable in case X the preponderance standard is the very same standard used to show that defendant B is liable in case Y but on the other hand Perhaps more interesting than the similarities in proving claims inside and outside of the courtroom are the dissimilarities. Now, intuitively, these differences might not seem particularly notable, right? Of course, one's approach to proving a claim in court where you're going to be subjected to rules of evidence and procedure will drastically differ from instances when you're proving a claim for, say, policy reasons, as is the case with cyber attack attribution. But I think there's actually more there. I think the differences between proving claims in court and proving claims for policy reasons point to a fascinating, intertwined relationship between proof and legitimacy. At core, why is it that proving claims in court is subject to so many rules and restrictions? Well, at core, it's because those restrictions are necessary to achieve a verdict that will be accepted by the public. A verdict that will be seen as, yes, legitimate. Why is it that, as Kristen suggested today, proving a cyber attack should require the public release of evidence sufficient to demonstrate the perpetrator's guilt to a clear and convincing standard? Well, at core, I think, it's the same notion that that standard will allow a nation to legitimately take repercussive action. And thinking about this relationship between proof and legitimacy offers some insight in a host of other contexts. In some instances, the legitimacy of a decision-maker significantly lowers the standard of proof that's applicable. So, for example, if a trusted doctor offers you a diagnosis, your reaction is probably not to demand a significant amount of evidence to back that diagnosis, right? You kind of just believe your trusted doctor. In other instances, though, even a legitimate decision maker must meet some standard of proof given the significance of a decision. And I think Kristen's paper expertly tees up this issue, giving us a nice window into this intertwined relationship between proof and legitimacy. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, the University of Arkansas School of Law, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The producer is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, And music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host today, Alex Nunn. And I do hope that you will join us next time when we take on another work in the world of evidence and proof.